Welcome to Dead Cat. We have been gravely betrayed. This is the end of the era. This is a breaking news. The podcast is imploding. Who's the we? In that? Who's the we in that? Subject? Is we the audience? <laughs> the, we, have I committed a front against the entire Dead Cat community? Yeah, we, yeah exactly. The, the diehard fans, the thousands of listeners. You know, you. It's Merry Tom. Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Your yeah, podcast stocking is filled with coal. <laughs> You know that there's like a percentage of our audience. I don't know what percent, maybe a minority. That's just like he's fucking gone. Thank God this guy's out. Like I was, I was dragging ass on this show. Yeah. So Tom uh, is um, leaving for a different startup. Yes. He's gonna go join a little-known publication called the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. After eight great years at Dead Cat, it's time to happy trails for me. I gotta get my LinkedIn post right for, for for my leaving Dead Cat. No, like Eric said, and as I've tweeted, I am joining the Wall Street Journal, and they have requested. How do I say this without getting? They're bringing trouble? the kibosh down. You know, they're, yeah. they're they are a large media company, and so they want to make sure that Tom is not creating competing products. And we know that Dead Cat and the Wall Street Journal's podcast division are yeah. in a in a heated Fierce battle for rivalry. dominance. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They see but, us as a rival. That's the key. Uh, oh, that's I, the takeaway. <laughs> I will just say that as I found out in my early onboarding to the Wall Street Journal, a lot of journal listeners to this show. And so, hey, everybody out there, I know the Wall Street your Journal, listening did to this. this to you. No, no, I love my bosses <laughs> and I love my new coworkers. And wow, Aaron's trying to get Tom fired before he starts, so he can get him back. At the podcast, <laughs> right? And I'm validating what he needs to separate from the podcast. It's and I'm like, a huge supporter of standards yeah. and practices and <laughs> and editorial discretion. And <laughs> and look, I've uh, we have we have said on this show that the journal is probably the most reliable source for tech news, and their judiciousness, <laughs> unfortunately, is. I wouldn't want to have to bear it myself personally, but uh, I'm glad it exists and the people have to be sort of saint-like, no opinion havers. Uh, I gave up that life. Well, but, yeah, we're good, luck, good luck to you, Tom. Well, you, you tell me, though, because, you know, this is just step one of two. The second one is when Mike Bloomberg buys the journal, apparently. And we have to figure wow. out how the melding of, you know, Bloombergian, you know, everything is, you know, everything's on the table. You can do whatever you want melds with the uh, more strict. I'm, I'm joking, right? Isn't Bloomberg also like a strict? Oh, Bloomberg's you know, all over the place. When I, when I worked at Bloomberg, all I remember is that everybody knew my life minute to minute. Because not only do you swipe in with your badge and swipe out so they know when you're in the building, they know when your keyboard is not in use. So, <laughs> like, it's pretty <laughs> Do they do, do they keystroke tracking at Bloomberg? Does he just sit over if there? If you ever get like, your badge enough at Bloomberg, they send you home to go get it. It's like yes. you're like an elementary school student. Yeah. They oh. would call my boss. Like, I had a security guard tell me this, this is going to the highest levels, you know, my badge failures. I remember when I got packages sent to the office, which I've done at every place I've worked, even when I was a waitress, when I got mail sent to the office that I needed to pick up because I don't live in a fancy doorman building. That was also a security matter. And I had to have a real conversation about it. But that's Bloomberg. None of us has worked at the Wall Street Journal. We don't know what foibles that they have. You'll have to you'll have to let us know. Tell us. Through a pseudonym, I guess. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, our very but special guest, that, that Dom Toten. Good, that would be a good bit. We like have this like anonymous character that they can never sort of totally prove is you. It's like it just sounds I'm, like I'm, get, Tom. I'm getting word from <laughs> someone who's appeared on this show before. Uh, 
Yeah, I'd love for my first introduction to the journal standard and practices to be as me <laughs> submitting content to a podcast under a pseudonym in which I'm talking about the interior, you know, politics of, of the company that I, I, I do think it's strange that this show is popular among reporters and people at the Wall Street Journal, and yet they're banning you. Whatever. They're anyway. not banning me. They're 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 asking me for a little bit of a timeout. Uh, as, I, as, I, as I onboard with the team. See you guys Listen, back here in a I couple months. A Merry star, Christmas. Tom. I made you a star. Well, not big enough of one, apparently. <laughs> well, so now that that's out of the way. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Eric is taking back the podcast. Do you want to talk Eric's about what the show is going to be like going uh, forward so you can actually be, keep people excited about it? It's all business. All right. It's all money and sense going forward. None of this tomfoolery, you know. Sense. No, None I'm, of this tomfoolery I, could have been the new name of the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I'm, I I think in January, I'm going to experiment with uh, different configurations. I mean, Katie, uh, I can come, an I can irregular, come irregular uh, <laughs> special guest can come on. But I, I, I think I, I will experiment with format. You know, I, I don't know. This is not the part of the show. Yeah. We're going to keep going. Snapchat and OnlyFans, uh, a TikTok, all of it. I wasn't told, by the way, I couldn't have an OnlyFans, so that that may be my outlet. Well, you know, the problem with co-hosts <laughs> is they cut in. You know, I, I, if it's a one-on-one interview show, I just I can <laughs> I can be a more Kara Swisher-like figure and just sort of really get all my opinions out. Which right now I feel like. I'm only you getting feel stifled. Third. Are we stifling? I, feel, you? Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, by having other people talking, <laughs> the free flow of newcomer opinions right, that exactly. made you a character on Twitter for 20, 25 minutes or so. Oh my God. What happened? Never, you know, I'm I, not on Twitter anymore. What I, go, what? I got it. This I, fucking thing brought me back to Twitter. It was like you were bringing This was like down a trauma you. for me. Okay. So, you know, the New York Times broke this story about this congressman who faked his resume, right? Right, right, right. And then there were some like, Santos, I don't know. George Santos. Li- liberal leftists. I can't quite tell where they, they're Parker Malloy fans. I don't, I don't know. even know what that means. Continue. Some account. So, yeah, exactly. so I just make the point that like it's ridiculous to criticize the outlet that scoops the story for mm-hmm. failing to scoop it earlier. And like the last person you should criticize are the actual people doing the scooping and like any other institution in the world should be blamed before them. And of course, defending the New York Times is the one thing that everybody hates on Twitter. Yeah, don't do Left, that. right, or center. People are you like, also you were defending the New York more. Times in the shell of defending a Michael Barbaro tweet, which I think oh is my like God, ex- yeah. exponentially exactly. more offensive. <laughs> so do you, classic, don't <laughs> do you don't take yourself? L's when other people are taking L's. So my Twitter, and then and then of course you know me. Like, like you've heard of suicide by cop. This is like suicide <laughs> by Barbaro. <laughs> so so people are coming at me. And I'm replying to every single one of them. You know, I'm just what like... What are you doing? <laughs> so so all my followers are like more aware of this than they ever would have been because instead of just getting all these random replies, I'm like engaging with everybody and like... You went for a full teeth for a boy. Because you started I, telling I people like, fuck off. I mean, no, it was, oh my then, God. Then I said, I said something like, you know, liberals who are upset that like, I don't know, the New York Times isn't giving them scoops and... I, what did I say about the right? Anyway, I just told don't ask left, me to recall. I, it, okay? I told the left and right to both go fuck yourselves on Twitter. Oh my God, and that, you're insane. Then I was a little surprised why people were so angry at me, you know. But I mean, the, the, the responses are idiotic. I mean, literally, you get people saying, like, 
Well, I enjoyed this one. Somebody was like, I bet you don't have any friends. And I replied to them, if I didn't have any friends, wouldn't it be really mean of you to say that to me? Like, I do. They're like, they're not very good. I thought liberals and leftists. It's almost like you're a sad person if you were to say something like that. They're supposed to be nice. You know, I I, I feel like caring is supposed to be part. Like, isn't the point of having. When you see Pete Buttigieg, do you think state benefits for people that you want to extend your compassion to? To people you don't know, like I feel like that should translate. I think you misinterpreted your actual like interpersonal behavior. I think you misinterpreted what it means to be a liberal today. But to me, a liberal today, you have to do means testing for emotions. It's just like, well, um, if you are below a certain income bracket, then I suppose I should extend some element of empathy to you. Uh, Oh my god! Yeah, and then I got the tweets that are like, some white guy, some average white guy with an opinion. You know, it's just like, wow, that is. Oh, that's the name of your new podcast. Um, maybe, yeah. Re- I really, I, I'm just what everybody wants me to do is lean into race politics. That's <laughs> what the that's what the politics should be about. Just sort of woke culture, you know. Like they're like more of that. Well, Double click on that part of the show. Gonna say, I guess that Tom and I will actually never be guests again. <laughs> I'd love to come back to yeah, my new editors at the journal and ask to reappear on the new race focused <laughs> dead cat. <laughs> what it's all about. <laughs> It's like, no, no, no. The format has changed a bit since you guys were concerned. Now it's all about like cranial shapes. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, okay. So, Eric, that was... um... Yeah, watch watch this space. It sounds like watch this space. It was was the day Eric became president. (laughs) To 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 close off, maybe this. I literally had someone in my DMs, by the way, saying that it looked like I was about to go on Tucker Carlson. It's like I'm being mobbed by all these leftists, but they want to dream up a world where I'm like suddenly on the most powerful platform. Oh my god! You know, it's just like. Oh, yeah, you guys are all booing me constantly, but it's me who's about to oppress you all. Like, it's like this, it's just like total, like, story crafting. You know, they just, it is insane. So clearly, this is something that's still very present for you. And that this radicalizes me, you know, a a professional therapist uh, (laughs) might want to walk through with you a couple times. To, so we so we can all move on. <laughs> but I also trauma. like Tom, Tom brought I, it up. I, I did bring it up, and 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 I also like the idea of Eric going over this with his therapist. And every I like minute, did, but I was bragging about it. I'm like, I'm fighting with them. Like, fuck them. Oh my! I can only imagine what your therapist write, was writing down on her fucking notepad. <laughs> yeah, well, she, she was in the replies. Like, oh being like, my god. She was like, there, go kill yourself. You have no friends. Stop. No. See, and this you know, this is why I don't really use Twitter so much. Um, but well, I think, Eric, you this, were like trying to wean yourself off of it, right? Wasn't this like in the period where you I was literally like, doing the whole fight on the web browser, mobile web browser version of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, like that's how like it's like Eric went to a methadone clinic and immediately bottomed out. Now I know why your therapist moment. didn't say anything in that first session because she was just like, "We got it. There's, we got to He has to get to a place where he can start unpacking this on his own before I can Listen, really help him. Let's see if we can try to make this into something useful for the broader audience. Well, I was going to say part of the year in review that we were planning was to think about Twitter. I didn't realize that Eric had been engaging with it so. Uh, <clears throat> So ardently over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, so well, clear, clearly Eric's experience might tell us something about the direction of new Twitter and you, Umlaut Twitter. 
who, well, I, I guess what I sort of gathered through this episode, taking newcomer out of it specifically, is that it all it all kind of went through the same cycle that Twitter outrage cycles have gone through over the past couple of years, which is like there's a character people pile on. At some point, there's an article in like a Gawker, you know, subsidiary or, or something Did made you, up of ex-Gawker people. Did you article about you, Eric? Excuse me. Keep I was mentioned in a Substack. This Parker Malloy person, it was behind a paywall, though. I mean, she was just using me as like as yeah, if yeah. I was like a New York Times reporter when I, I wasn't. But I think they called you like a like a VC freak or something like that. But but anyway, the, <laughs> that's what we call Eric. Joking. Yeah. I, I love how VC world is like, oh, I'm not sufficiently deferential. And then you know, the rest <laughs> of the world. This is what drives me. Literally, we had this podcast where we're fighting with Antonio Garcia Martinez and I'm like arguing for the left. And then meanwhile, before that's published, I'm eating it from the left it's just like man you really not this is the most self-righteous thing you can say but you can't be an independent thinker anymore you gotta align with one side or the other otherwise people are just gonna boo boo okay but but here's here's what i here's what i was thinking though as as a cycle went through its you know stations like it all felt fairly deflated to me you know like it was it was this thing that we've seen happen for the last couple of years and it sounds like like the the frisson that exists in these things, <laughs> it wasn't there anymore. Like, I just feel like we're going through the motions of it. It was like but flat. It fe- People weren't really. No one's invested in this anymore, which is to yeah. me more than anything, the reason I, you know, taking even Elon out of it, why I'm just not, I just don't expect Twitter to matter as much in the future. So you think reporters, even without the Elon of it all, people just don't, they're kind of just... It, Done. It was running on fumes or it was getting to that but point. The, the and- one counter to that is my bizarre meltdown on Twitter definitely penetrated like my real life. Like I had people being like, what's what's going on? Like, you, are you OK? You know, like so definitely normies became aware of it, you know, and people who never interact with my tweets were like very, very aware. So I, I, I do think Twitter's reach is bigger than representative, which is why Elon's trying to do this whole weird view count thing right now but yeah I don't know. which again when i released my fake statement distancing myself from you and i got messages from people saying hey my mom didn't understand your tweet <laughs> exactly <laughs> that was hysterical by the way there is a penetration outside the world that, that that is even more reason for journalists to not be on there but if but let's just go with my argument that it isn't maybe you know as uh, motivating to people as as it was for yeah, the past I couple mean, of years. Twitter what does it, is... what does it mean for journalists? Like, because uh, I mean, Katie, you've been off maybe more than the three of us, but yeah, like I, I just I, haven't paying attention to shit online. Continue though. <laughs> Tom like, is just like, just as I'm giving up my independent platform, where in my and going to a big sort of faceless media company, maybe that's like the narrative at the moment where no, everybody there uh, is a there is a face of our Tom's media company. It is the face of Rupert Murdoch. It's huge. It looms large like the emperor's <laughs> face. Uh, but journalism, or sorry, Twitter has meant so much to the way a lot of journalists have decided whether or not their stories have impact and like the conversation that's happening around it. And even as I was kind of sort of off it over the last couple of months, I did sort of, you do miss a little bit the kind of what, you know, what engagement is my story getting? What is the conversation around it? And I am kind of curious Mm -hmm. to hear both your thoughts on like, if we are entering a world where Twitter just matters less and journalists are spending less time on there and viewing the success and penetration of their stories, not through how much people are talking about it on Twitter, but through some other prism, I mean, it, what does that world even look like? Like, how do you decide whether your story is having impact if you're not at least taking into account, you know, the people that are talking about it one way or the other on Twitter? So that's so funny because I feel like 
my weird ass experience being in Washington, which has been super weird, is basically what you just described. Like there are a lot of Washington reporters who are on Twitter and very active and whatever, and their stories get talked about a lot. But then there are some reporters who are really not on it at all, truly. Like I would say the entire national security team at the New York Times is like not on Twitter. You know, Julian Barnes, my colleague Mazzetti, when Matapuzo was still in DC before he went to Brussels to be our like head of investigations there, he like stopped tweeting altogether. Our congressional reporter, Nick Fandos, was literally never on Twitter the entire time he covered the entire intel investigation around Trump and two impeachments. And it did not impact the reach of their stories, is what I would say, nor did it really, like, I don't think you would judge their work and its success by whether or not people were talking about on Twitter or whether or not they were on Twitter, the stories were the stories. So like a secret drone program. <laughs> right. I mean, this is what was <laughs> so, in, so I mean, insane so it's about sort of, Jason's Calcanis's take on that episode and you were trying to push well, back Well, I mean, what bit. was interesting is it's clear he's never heard of any of those people or read any of those <laughs> stories. Like, I think, no, I mean, like he, was, or, he kept talking about a story about it. stories have penetrated his consciousness, but he has well, no idea. probably how, not. Like, I mean, like he kept talking about this one story that I never heard of about a suitcase company. Like it was a front page away. story about a suitcase secret right. drone program. And I, I <laughs> right. had no idea what story he was talking right. about because I was like, when I think about the biggest stories the Times has published in the last few years, it, none of them are suitcase stories. They're all like like a suitcase startup. It's like secret drone program. It's like this incredible look we just did inside the Russian military. It's a lot of foreign news I'm sure he hasn't read. It right. is, you know, stories about what was going on at the Justice Department in the last days of you know, before January 6th. Like, these are really important stories that none of the reporters really tweeted out, and yet they had a lot of impact. And so the impact in D.C. is measured by, you know, doesn't impact an election, (laughs) doesn't impact actions by Congress. And rather than Twitter, this is something I really find super complicated for me because I don't watch TV or engage with it. It is cable television that is like the Twitter of D.C. So like if reporters are on cable television, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, that is where like. And that's the conversation that happens after the story comes out, right? Yes, that's where all the influence is measured. It's not really Twitter as much. And I wonder if it's just because like, you know. Chuck Grassley was born before the invention of the chocolate chip cookie, so he might not know how to use like <laughs> Twitter, but he definitely knows how to like sit still and watch TV. So, he's I mean, actually like, great I, on Twitter, or he used to be, if you, you remember mean his that. Top he's had aides. A, whoever it is, I, it's got to be him. Remember his one about like assume deer dead and, and all of that. Oh. Shit? The, the Chuck Grassley Twitter feed is actually incredible, but 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 I I hear your general take. Yeah, that's that's his, before like his hands. That's when his hands were still operational. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I, you know, I guess within business and and tech business reporting, but tech is totally different channel. because like I'm sure that suitcase story was all over Twitter. Like even right. though it wasn't on the front page of the New York Times, even though it was probably not on the front page of the Journal or pretty much anywhere else on Twitter, I bet the suitcase right. story was a huge deal. I mean. Tying it to my sort of experience on Twitter and just sort of Twitter generally and the point you're making, I mean, Twitter is just like a psychological war on the participants to convince them that the things that they're experiencing on Twitter really matter, right? Even some of the cancel Otherwise, culture why are you on stuff, Twitter at all? Right. right. Some of the cancel culture <laughs> If you see stuff, past the veil there, it's all very sad and pathetic. You know, the leftists <laughs> who are like, cancel culture aren't, isn't real, we're just sort of like, 
I don't know, just stop reading Twitter. And like, if this problem goes away when you're not reading Twitter, then you didn't get canceled. You know what I mean? They're just, I agree with that. Actually, th- There's just like, <laughs> stop looking at the people yelling at you. Don't respond to them. Turn off the app. And like, if the problem is gone, then it wasn't a problem. You know, like I do think yeah. it's just Twitter makes people who are on it more relevant. So they have an incentive to believe that it's like more the relevant real world. On Twitter. And, and yeah. so exactly. So everyone is just playing this game of like what happens here is the real, you know, global discourse when when clearly normies aren't reading it. The president's not really reading it. You know, I think the Biden White House sort of indicated that they see it as a way to manipulate journalists mostly yeah because you know who reads it journalists and their editors and so i think if we could get our editors off of twitter and never look at it again that would be the most extraordinary thing that that would be the real meaning of christmas Yeah. yeah but then what would what would where would the discourse take place in a way that reporters could engage with it because okay in dc you've got cable television maybe you've got like a kind of closed circuit of people who will you know read the tip sheets and and talk about the stories and the impact that it had I mean, like Twitter is in- incredibly useful for that. I mean, it, I mean yes, well, it inflates me. stupid stories, you know, like it, it inflates uh, in importance, something like the this fucking away story, which apparently did a real, real mindfuck <laughs> on the VC investing community. Here. I have never, um, I mean, I own two pieces of away luggage and I love it. I had no idea there was anything wrong with the company. And I still don't know because you know what I didn't do? <laughs> Read the story. I just didn't give enough of a shit. I was like, you know what? There's a huge war happening in Europe, and I'm going to take that time to read an update on what's going on in Ukraine. Am I an as asshole? Like a, maybe. <laughs> as a, as maybe a side point to all of this, I, I've been reflecting on the. You, did, you probably didn't listen to it, Katie, but we talked to Antonio Garcia Martinez last oh, week. Oh, that's something like, interesting. Who I, I thought is a smart who guy. Who did not tweet the episode, dude? Like, come on. Well, well I look, don't tweet our episodes because I'm not on Twitter anyway. Could you, yeah. yeah, yeah, no. Well, he, he kind you're, of is. But, you're a stealth. Uh... <laughs> yeah, he, he, he. You know that, that that is what it is. But you know that was really like bringing him on, and I'm glad he came, and I do think he is a smart guy who's done the reading. But it was really our best attempt to get someone who speaks to that point of view, the like anti-tech point of view, to come engage with us. Anti-media point of view. Anti-media, sorry, sorry. Anti-media point of view. And I really bent over backwards, I thought, during the episode to be as agreeable to him and see his points of view uh, as much as possible. And the more I think about that episode, the more hardened I am to the media perspective on Definitely. it. And, and the fact that these guys are just, it's just, we are, there is no way we're going to be able to bridge that gap. And I'm sorry, they're a bunch of fucking babies. Because right. if, if you, if you want to talk about hard coverage and where like most of the hard coverage that comes from the media, it does not go towards the fucking away CEO. It does not go towards, you know, VCs. Is that CEO or, a nice person? Is that the reason why? The issue was like, that? you know, Slack employees being upset. If the board wanted to hold on, they absolutely could have held on to that those people i don't i have no i mean no, but my was, point is like was, if you uh, look at where like the most aggressive anti-tech anti-tech in quotes coverage has been in the last couple of years it's been towards facebook it's been towards maybe google it's been towards um Face- facebook I, yeah apple for sure. yeah and like it's like they're still engaging with the media they're they <laughs> yeah. have whole comms departments that are doing that i mean Huge. like if they, Huge. they work to influence the story so that they can have their point of view out there they don't just basically like you know take their ball and walk home because they're upset that a couple of mean stories were written about them and like you see this in dc probably exponentially more intensely that the media writes really mean stories about congress people or whatever the white house or, or any right. like you're no, no, they're still, I, 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 they're still did, calling. Not have, did not have strong responses i was literally like begging him like make your strongest argument please like let's not to shit on a guest but i mean stamos I think was so clear-eyed, you know, Alex Stamos, the former chief security officer, who uh, said this Elon bubble is going to pop. And I 
he <laughs> he's being vindicated by the day. Like, thank God we got that episode out. Oh, you when mean we that did. poll, that Twitter poll? <laughs> <laughs> right. I that think was that one was of the before, funniest things. Ever. You know, every but but Stamos just said, you know, this this sort of the cultural Elon bubble was gonna gonna pop, and everybody supporting him was gonna look like a fool and start pretending like they never did. Thankfully, uh, you know, Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia cut checks, so it will be harder yeah. for them to pretend like they never did. And All In has been all in on Elon Musk. But, yeah, I, I, things are turning fast. <laughs> and to some degree, I mean, maybe there's a good time to pivot the show because <laughs> the media is winning and techs, you know, all the tech made up bullshittery. Those valuations are collapsing. Bitcoin, Tesla, like that stuff is falling in reality is coming back. It's great. <laughs> I don't even view that as like the media necessarily winning or losing. I don't well, know yeah, I don't, I mean, like, the stock like, market is starting to reflect with right, like this, right. skept- this skepticism. Yes, totally. skepticism. Sure. And we've seen that in so many other instances, and I think that's totally fine. And it's not like tech will go away. Like Wall Street no. didn't go away. Right. You know, like government didn't to. go away, <laughs> even though right. government is trying to dismantle itself as quickly as possible. Like government's still here. We still have elections, even though, you know, a lot's happened to make people cynical about government. So, um, yeah, it's not like tech's going to go away just because people are like, Elon Musk might not be a god. Well, it's sort of like elections where, you know, before an election, there are all these crazy narratives and then elections ideally sort of create some consensus around what the true narrative is based on the actual performance of the politicians. Similarly in business, right, like the, the stock midterms, market, the red the wave. Stock, it's hard. It's hard for everyone to agree at what point the stock market is rational. You know what I mean? So when the stock market is saying Tesla's worth the entire auto industry, the media class and sort of the skeptics are in a weird place to deny that when, you know, the stock market's our version of elections. The Elon bubble is... It's it's also just entirely under his control. I think there was a lot that I mean, people have been posting all these charts showing like since he bought Twitter, Tesla's stock has, you know, fallen whatever percentage, you know, insane amount. He's probably I don't think as the time of recording, he's not the richest person in the world. Oh, he was. He hasn't been for a couple couple for a little while, but I mean, it's collapsing. It's down year to date. Tesla's down 69 percent. Oh, he must love that. I just think like there's no winning when talking to the people that are full Elon diehards because they're going to say in the same way that people that, you know, defended Trump throughout the entirety of, you know, his disastrous presidency saying, you know, look what he's doing for the country. He's willing to sacrifice his net worth and all of his wealth in order to build this country back up. The Elon defenders are saying, well, you know, the fact that he's lost so much money or, you know, personal wealth as he's taken on this, this whole Twitter quest is an example of like him fighting for free speech. And so it's not been a debacle. Psychological lock-in is just such a powerful force. Once somebody, once you have a theory of the world that revolves around someone, it's very hard. Yeah. You know, to pivot. But, anyway, but, I want to change. I want unless you really have something to say on this. Well, here's just the, the last thing I would say on on just the, the the AGM that group's vision of media. And you know, I don't. He wasn't necessarily endorsing himself, but he was basically saying. Some people would say that the, you know, the best outcome would be that the New York Times and all mainstream media just like burns to the ground and none of that's left. And it seemed very violent. Like he, he, I mean, he was like nuke the media. I, I think nuke it, it. Yeah. Yeah. It was whatever. a little like. It was, it was colorful language. I, I don't I, know. I, I'm not one I, of those reporters that actually thinks we're like under attack and like this is a dangerous job really? to have. Like, no, no. I, I mean, mean like under CNN attack maybe rallies, on Twitter and some I shit, think people, but, there are definitely Trumpers who I think if the rules were eviscerated would kill the media. Like, <sighs> 
whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But I just wanted to say, like, they don't really have a proposition for anything, like a realistic proposition for anything that would replace it. And I, I watched She Said the other day. Um, the know, ultimate the, normie movie. I haven't seen it. It's not very good. But the one thing I, I will say to it is that I think it does a good job of explaining or at least pointing out the role that the media plays when every other institution fails. Because in the case of Harvey Weinstein, the law didn't do anything, obviously. Right. There were people that, that pressed charges and they basically dropped them. The industry didn't do anything. He wasn't blackballed. There was basically no recourse for anybody that had been you know, raped or assaulted or harassed by him other than to go to the media. And like, right. the media acted as it's supposed to, which is like some sort of force pushing against power uh, in order to rectify the situation. I don't think it's the ultimate solution. Like the media writing the story doesn't and, solve and it. And the media it, cannot be expected to get every Harvey Weinstein. That's what I've been losing. That's what I was losing about it on Twitter with the leftists and what I was losing fighting with AGM about. Like you can't, the media is not the only institution. You know what I mean? It's meant to sort of be be a salve. It's one piece extreme... of yeah. It's one piece of many. And in 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 the case of Harvey Weinstein, it was the only functional one, and right. it led towards him being literally put in prison um, for the things that you know the right. law was not able to do prior to that fact. And like, I don't think these guys, you know, and I want to put AGM as like the face of it, but the people, the, the biologies, whoever who think that the New York Times and all these publications should be burnt to the ground, they have an actual answer to how to deal with someone like him. Right. They they just don't because every other institution that existed failed. And if they think the New York Times shouldn't be there, then Harvey Weinstein would arguably still be out making movies and attacking women. Well, this is why I keep saying that the right needs to produce actual reporting, fact finding like none of like AGM just launched a podcast. You know, Jason on All In is not claiming to be a journalist like none of these people are committing themselves to the moral sort of obligations of journalism where, oh, I might actually do some real reporting that would help society in some way well the act of reporting is like the act of reporting itself is treachery right like all you want is like an unfiltered point of view coming from the person that has their one perspective on it and i also want to add to this and i'm sorry i didn't bring it up in that episode the example of going direct was very clear in its uh uh, effectiveness during the sbf situation when sequoia wrote their own (laughs) article about him so the journalism that came directly from the investor clearly isn't very good and, uh, and they have far more access to information than any of us, you know. Right. And they wrote no. the glowing bullshit piece that they apparently want us to be writing all the time. They want right. us to be writing these kid glove pieces. Oh, and the other thing I was going to say is that Harvey Weinstein is a, was a huge donor of the Democratic Party. And the New York Times and every other publication right. wrote of it had no problem writing mean stories about him. So the idea that, like, we are ideologically beholden to Democrats because they donate to... No, the, I'm it, tired just, of media criticism. All right. I, I know we get a lot of reporters on here, but my goal in 2023 is just to not take media criticism so personally not really get so just just stop letting them work the refs just like media's i think on a good footing there's plenty of media criticism already and just to get back to sort of scrutinizing the subjects and like move on from the bullshit of of being worked having the the refs worked i came into this podcast really trying to be not this episode but like generally dead cat trying to be as open to the other point of view as possible and not being a media elitist and 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 trying to criticize the media uh, as a way to better understand the complaints against us. And after having conversations with people on the other side, I am more hardened to the media side than I was going into it. And I didn't expect that. And uh, I don't know. These people need to fucking grow up. Yeah, it's America. And I mean, the last thing just while we're deconstructing the AGM thing uh-huh. is that 
he seemed to be mourning the loss of sort of advertising-based shared media that everyone sort of understood together, while also sort of rooting for this opinionated sort of sub-SAC journalism. I honestly, it wasn't clear which world he was rooting for. You also, know, like, it's, it's a strange thing to like ask the media to re-embrace an advertising model that was killed by the tech industry, essentially, or at least made like much, much, much less lucrative. And I'm right. not blaming the tech industry like it was evil that they did that. Like, I think advertising is problematic for that exact reason. Like, it doesn't have morals. It just goes towards audience. And I also thought, well, I thought it was super bizarre that he wouldn't say whether he was a Republican or not. Like, Oh, I didn't if, care about that. It felt very hard. Like, I almost wanted to have a survey done before he came on. Like, what are your professed views because uh, there's someone if they're a republican game, or not it's such a loaded question that's the most days. black and white thing there is like if you can't decide which party you're well i mean that, that few people want to associate with the party like you're fine you know saying you're a democrat i would I'm imagine a diehard democrat but a lot of people that may even agree with you in a lot of politics you know policies wouldn't call themselves a democrat like i think that's a hard question to ask people they're wimps you know they don't admit that there's a bifurcated choice they have to choose one and that choosing shows how they stack up the values of the two parties anyway that's a boring we don't need to sorry katie um, we were we we were i was just saying that i thought she said was not a very good movie but it did kind of reaffirm my belief that katie was not on the podcast for that part of it so uh that's why she didn't yeah. Uh, have you? Oh, watched but I, it? I was actually saying that you know, although she said was not a great movie, any movies or anything, and so <laughs> like cinema, like <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like I, you know, I watch, my life's uh, a little, little, little busy, so not with work, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, my yeah. personal life having gone up in complete flames, I haven't had the chance to watch as much TV and film as I'd like. But when I go into a catatonic state of overwhelm, I'm actually I have a really good long <laughs> list of things to watch from um, my room in the insane asylum. So I'll put she said at the in the middle. It sounds like. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go right to she said. Uh, but uh, check out Tar. <laughs> check out Tar. Uh, okay. Highly, highly yeah, recommended. Things about it. I want to see it. Um, yeah, I watched it. Let's. Uh, I, I would. I would fight my bosses to come back onto this podcast to have a conversation about the ending of Tar. Jesus. Uh, okay. There's a, um, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Good episode. Sorry. The, All I know uh, is I came back in and I heard Eric say something about about Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, well, we're, like, we, we, I am, we started I am reflecting on la- last part. week's episode <laughs> a little bit, just sort of how how we finally faced, you know, some iterate, some real version of the media critique without imagining ourselves, and we were underwhelmed. I think. Uh, That's too bad. The people um, that want to burn in, yeah, media institutions to the ground. Turns out they don't really have an alternative. So, so yeah, I mean, Tom well, I was going to say, I think that we would do such a good job critiquing the media, except we'll all get, well, Tom and well, I'll the get media fired. Does it all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I think we'd be happy to give that searing critique. It's just, you know, Tom's just starting his new job, so he really can't get into it. I need I mean, to keep mine for the healthcare. <laughs> but yeah. so, Tom, I mean, this is your last episode. We okay. we had one big bucket. I mean, which was. You've come away from this podcast sort of you've sort of worked through the media criticism and you you believe in media sort of at the end of the day. I and came think out there's more, been a lot of yeah. sort of bullshit haterade on the other side. 
I, yeah, to I put I, it in a millennium. I don't even understand you know? what it means to not believe in media. Like you don't want news. <laughs> right. Like you don't want to. Like if there's a empty, huge it's an empty that's, critique. That's the fire. We've been struggling like, with. If, it's like if, what's the alternative? Yeah. Well, like so, okay. So, so here, if there's an earthquake <laughs> that takes out like all of, of you know tweets. Oregon and Washington and Northern California. Do we not want reporters on the scene? Journalism. Geologists should all start their own independent Substacks. <laughs> right. And you should, if you know, is a as a reader. Mass shooting, do we not want to know? What, I mean, okay, there's that's debate. Do we not want to know the facts there? If there is. Anyway, we saw the cold front destroying yeah. the Midwest. Exactly. Anyway, yes. yeah. it's yeah, dumb. Yeah. No, yeah. see, Katie, what you're describing here, that's not the media, that's news. The media is when they write an article <laughs> about the founder of Away. That's. <laughs> That's the media, and that's what needs to be brought okay. to the ground. Well, I really love news, and like I said, as the owner of two pieces of away luggage, I ha- I am very happy with them. And I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, so they're what, what, really Tom, nice. What are your other big conclusions, or what? What else have we sort of worked through on throughout this, this show? Yeah, this is like the last song. Did you guys see Walk Hard? Remember Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story? Oh yeah, of John course. C. Riley, one of my favorite movies. Uh, but at the end of the movie, he has to like sing a song at an award show to like sum up everything he's learned in his life. Yeah. But anyway, what else have I learned through the process of this show? Um, well, I've liked our episodes. Who's the VC that came out at the at the outset of the bubble bursting? A Rick. Oh, uh, Rick Heitzman. Yeah, Rick Heitzman. Oh, I really yeah, like that episode. Great. That was a lot of fun. It was fun to hear Eric asking the question, what is the opposite of quantitative easing? <laughs> there was a name for it. There was tightening. a name. Quantitative tightening. tightening. It's yeah. tightening. It like, easing and tightening. It was, a, it was a real like late millennial the, question. That, that, that like, episode is sort of what I see some of the future. I mean, it was more businessy and more sort of financial oriented. Yeah. I think we're going to enter a very interesting period for tech reporters and just the tech industry in general of not being fueled by low interest rates. And this unending supply of capital that has created a bunch of interesting companies, a bunch of fraudulent companies, uh, a bunch of celebrities guess, that probably shouldn't have been celebrities. Yeah, we're on the fence about the suitcase company. Is it, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with low interest rates. <laughs> yeah, it, it is certainly the question of our time, though. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I, I think we're in for a very new era of reporting and, and even just talking about these tech companies. And we have to ask very new questions about what their fundamentals are, what their values are. And I don't mean values like cultural values, but, you know, like, can they make yeah, money? Like, is, this, is this thing worth investing Anything. in? Anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's going to be a lot of fun, frankly, just because it's so new. It's just something we haven't had a chance to do. I mean, we've talked a lot about sort of Sam Bankman fried over the episodes and also just, you know, the sort of, I don't know, the tragic founder, you know. We, I feel like we obsessed over, we had the Elizabeth Holmes trial for a while. Our first episode was Parker Conrad, whose company's benefits imploded. I don't know. What's your, what's your walk away here on the, on the founders, on the tragic founders. I think the media is very adept at building up and taking down characters. It's one of the best things we do. Um, we, we love someone on the rise. We love someone who kind of breaks the mold. And in each of the cases here, it's that was a very smart way in which they positioned their, you know, character. Elizabeth Holmes was, you know, a Stanford dropout who didn't know much about, uh, you know, biology. Uh, turns out that was a bit of a red flag, but at the time it made her seem cool. Um, you know, obviously being a woman founder, you know, she she played that card very well and probably unfortunate to the women who built companies that actually did things. Um, 
Sam Bankman-Fried, I mean, we've talked endlessly about that one. This is going to be an incredible story going forward just because of how perfectly he played us by being this, like the, the face of crypto in an approachable way. Not and, that long. He burned super hot. I mean, I feel like he was in the zeitgeist. What was it, like two years? When he started throwing money around to politicians. Right. Yeah. 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 But also, you know, he was like, I'm pro-regulation which seemed right. you know, kind of yeah. counterintuitive to a lot of, you know, uh, you know, the general trend in media. So, yeah, I, I guess uh, th- there's not much to say there. Like it, it, you live by the sword, die by the sword with, with a lot of these It's people. so interesting too. Like I think there is a bigger question about um, the idea of a profile. Like, you know, we read profiles, we read celebrity profiles, we read business profiles, we read profiles of politicians. And I think that it's, it's always hard. And it's one of the reasons why I would rather do an investigative piece than a profile, because I think profiles are harder. Because I think it's more difficult to try to present somebody's life in the context of what's happening in the bigger world and actually give the reader something that that feels true. You know, when mm-hmm. you read a profile of um, a celebrity, of Brad Pitt or of, you know, or if you read a profile of a politician, do you feel like you're reading something true? Do you feel like you're reading something that gives you, I mean, I guess it gives you a couple of facts, but yeah. does it feel true? Like, do you, do you know the person after? Yeah. And if you don't, what do you really know? Are you just yeah. learning something about the way we're pouring I mean, the real, a social the real need into a human? Pro- and so like, those are hard. Is you, I mean, you could write three profiles with the same set of facts and have very different slants, I think. Mm. Absolutely. And, and that's and that's what a lot of you know the tech people do hate about media that is sort of if the mood about you know Brad Pitt is really negative right now those facts will have a negative slant or sometimes it's really negative but you get what who's that person is it like Taffy some you know you get one of these oh, yeah, profile writers who's who's good at writing like sort of a positive sounding profile or good at, like, negative or, time, or good at know? showing how like a celebrity reflects on her own life and makes her right. yeah. deeply insecure right. which actually right. does feel true because <laughs> right. it's like it's true, i'll never they, know what gwyneth paltrow is really better, like but i know how gwyneth you get a better tone than, i'm so happy you, you brought know. her up because yeah. i'm just so she, she's like yeah so she she's now like a showrunner of this show that was based on the book that she wrote called fleischman's in trouble i loved that book yeah, which is it, it's an interesting show. I just watched the first episode last night and I read an interview with her afterwards. It, it's a book about this uh, New York doctor, uh, a dog whistle, who um, <laughs> who uh, uh, gets divorced and his uh, in, in the process of his divorce, his wife just disappears for a couple of days and he's stuck with the kids. And he kind of has this like early 40s sexual revolution uh, no, or, or sexual awakening where he's like hooking up with all these people on Tinder. But I read this interview with Taffy. What's her last name? Brodeser? Ackner. Ackner, and she was talking about her, you know, success writing all of these celebrity profiles. And she wrote a really great piece about Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow and Bradley Cooper and Britney Spears and people like that. And she talked about how when she started working on the show and had met with the actors on the show, who uh, Claire Danes and uh, Jesse Eisenberg and um, Seth Cohen from the OC. I can't remember the actor's name. Um, They're also perfectly cast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she's like, I was sitting down. Brody. Uh, no, 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 uh, no. Adam Brody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she was like, I was sitting down to dinner with them and talking to them as regular human beings. And I realized they are much more real with me now than they ever were with me as a profile writer. And I kind of was terrible at my job because I was presenting these people as, oh, this is who they really are. But in fact, I didn't get anywhere with them. They were just presenting a version of themselves to me that was appropriate for the media. 
And that is kind of always what she struggled with as a profile writer was like, I am getting a version of them that they want presented to me, but I'm supposed to be interpreting a reality behind that that is going to be appealing to readers. And there is this kind of inherent artifice behind any kind of profile writing that I didn't realize until I actually had a human interaction with these people that wasn't transactional in nature. And I, I didn't do like I basically I was bad at my job up to that point, which obviously Even though she she's isn't. great. Yeah. And she so, and so smart... why would a business profile be any different? Right. Yeah, right. So when they're have, so controlled and they're right. so controlled and you have like investors or you have boards or you have executive suites saying we need a really good profile of Mark Zuckerberg. Like I think back to those profiles in the early days of Facebook. Those were all to Taffy's point in this interview very manufactured for specific reason that that a reporter really cannot cannot pierce through. It's hard. You can try. So now that Sam Bankman-Fried's company has collapsed, it's actually much easier to write about because the facts on the ground, it's really hard to get three different versions of a story out of the facts, right? Like it's it, there's only kind of really one one or two versions now it's and it, yeah. it, but there it's much clearer now that we have for example the statements from the ceo the accounting the ceo is doing the indictments by the federal government looking at a di- totally different set of facts that's not about how sam bankman fried is presenting himself or who he surrounds himself with or what he eats for dinner but they're just literally these very nuts and bolts things of where the money went and then you kind of only get one story it's funny that 15 minutes ago we were like oh yeah Media is good. Never mind. And now we're back to actually uh, media is a deeply broken practice. You no, know, not which... that it's not that it's broken, but that it's it's more complicated and difficult to write certain kinds of stories. And then I think that people imagine or that even sometimes reporters imagine for themselves, which is why we could do such a good job of critiquing media. But again, we all got to keep our jobs. <laughs> yeah, it's also, you know, part of it is the unknowability of people and the expectation that any person, especially in a transactional nature, could figure out what makes someone tick or what core moment in their history led them to be this person that, you know, made them incredibly successful, incredibly famous. If we wrote a profile of Eric today about his trauma, like it would be a very specific version of Eric. He'd be defending himself, blah, blah, blah. Would anybody get to know the real, like, who he is from that story? Like, well, no, interviewing the person is almost, yeah, well, interviewing the, the, the person is almost the worst. The real is on acid. Everything else is fake. <laughs> well, I mean, that's true, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want, I mean, this, this could be maybe not our last episode. If you want to do one more, we all just drop acid at the beginning and get to the real right. core of who we are. But we spend five the 18-hour episode. Like, pin drop, pin drop. <laughs> Pin drop, like Fox, you know. Uh, anyway. yeah. But again, we all need to kind of keep our jobs. So I don't well, know. <laughs> I, you know yeah. in, in the AGM episode, and this has been an idea that's sort of been bouncing around my head, just the sense, you know, we live in like this fog. Like there's so many facts in the world that we don't know, especially in business. There's just so much that's undisclosed. So we have that problem, which I think is obvious and easy to agree to on. But I think another problem that creates this narrative mess right now with sort of Twitter and the anti-media is just like there isn't a lot of consensus on shared stories and shared values. You know, like I think part of the problem is like, okay, with SBF, it's fairly easy because everybody agrees like fraud, theft, they're bad. But I think like going back to this sort of founder narrative stories, I think it's a lot less clear, you know, like Parker Conrad, our first guest, it's like 
His sins seem small. He's exciting. He's going for it again. Like how to spin those stories and like where our values are in terms of, I don't know, failure and sort of boss-employee relationships. Like all those things, we don't have shared values, so it's very hard to have shared stories. Well, I also think, and this actually came out of my reflecting on She Said, a mediocre movie, but an interesting topic to think about. Um, and a is, great story, which Tom was saying earlier. Yeah, that I think the media is very good at writing stories in which there's clear criminal misconduct. Like Harvey Weinstein was the well, best example. I mean example. about the facts being, in, you can't really move those facts around and tell different yeah. stories. Anyway, continue. Yeah, Harvey Weinstein, like that whole period, like that whole story was a great, one of the best examples of accountability journalism. It just basically every other system failed, but the media was able to kind of point out that you know, there's incontroversial or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like unassailable facts that he broke the law and he he damaged all these people. And I think that's why that story was held. And up we agree the that the actions that didn't necessarily break the law were immoral and wrong, too. Right. You know. I think mm-hmm. the gray area ones where I think the media really finds itself in a lot of trouble and where you end up kind of coming to conclusions that may be unfair to some of the subjects in it because it really can go both ways. But there's such a need to come up with some sort of conclusion or final analysis on what happened that certain people just get thrown under the bus, even if what they did is debatable still. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's been the problem with a lot of these kind of corporate culture stories, not to bring yeah, up and the that was my, I mean, again. I was going to say not to sound, because I actually like Jason Calcanis a lot. So, but I mean, it seemed to me that that was his worry and fear and anxiety around this suitcase story was that like the suitcases were being used in ways that were like too much to put on a suitcase. Yeah. I don't know. You, you, you really don't know what the story was, was like, about, do you? Did, did the suitcase <laughs> like, explode? They were carrying bombs in the suitcase. Well, no, no I mean, like, cause I know those, like, little lithium batteries in the suitcases. You oh, can't put them under I'd love the to see what hold. you think that story was about, Katie. So it is, like, so like, far away from it was. Suitcase but fell on, she knows. on fire okay. in the plane. Yeah. Yeah, no, it wasn't like someone got chemical burns because the lithium battery exploded on the, you know, on the airplane. Because that no, would actually was, be like a pretty straightforward story. <laughs> she was mean on Slack. I think people agree, but then they don't agree on what the punishment is. On the consequences. Is. Right. And, I, and I, I hate thinking about that, that, like accountability, for example, in the Harvey Weinstein thing, the accountability is still with the prosecutors, right? Jody and Megan didn't then go to law school, right. pass the bar, become state prosecutors, and take him in front of a jury. Like the accountability is still outside of the media organization. Right. And so because the actual solution that, exists outside of the media. Yeah. Uh, like laws that were being and passed Weinstein in different was states. convicted of rape, by the way, right? I mean, yes. multiple yes. times. Yes. Like in multiple, yes, multiple cities times. And but like, the, yeah. but the New York Times did not do that. And so if Harvey Weinstein had not been convicted, if the jury had not found him guilty, that also would not have been the Times. And so I think that because of a lot of things that have happened culturally in the last, you know, let's see eight, six years. Um, a you, certain president. There's, there's, there's been a, a wish and desire for the media to not only be able to surface the stories that prompt the questions and prompt the difficult Solve conversations, but to also times? then take people and put them in jail. Right. And that is literally never going to happen, nor should it. And again, if the jury had not convicted Harvey, that would not have been the times either. The slowness of the legal system in a Twitter culture, I do think, is one of the underestimated issues of our time. Like, we move fast. The business world moves extremely fast, but government moves too slow. And obviously, there's a level of sort of 
thoughtfulness and due process that you want with government. But man, it is way too slow. Definitely broken. Like, I think it's a core problem. I mean, from the regulatory front that the SEC just waits out, you know, crypto basically lets it blow up before they punish anybody. I think this Harvey Weins, any of this stuff, the government is not delivering as sort of a, it's cultural peace, right? It's going, the Trump, any sort of Trump intervention, the idea that we would have Trump prosecutions now when it's basically irrelevant because he's not president, but not when it actually mattered, is just a total dereliction of duty. So I think this Wait, slowness, dereliction of duty by whom? By ju- anyone who could reasonably have charged or decides to charge down the road if they didn't charge when it actually mattered, I just think is, is, well, is I think, bad. I, They're I moving too think slowly. If they can find evidence of somebody committing a crime, they should charge no matter they have to have the case but they should charge right. it whether or not it impacts somebody's ability to be president like right. i still think it's worthy to charge it like for example <laughs> you could say no you could say what's the point of charging harvey weinstein now that he's a decrepit old man with a walker when he can't right. rape anyone anymore right right they should have charged him when he was raping but it's right. like and no i think it's good that they right. charged better him. better late than never but i'm saying it would be well i do think the president is a unique more circumstance trust. it's it's hard, it's hard to put the you know the issues around charging the president with a crime, which has never actually been done and may not even be legal. No, we have on... charged people with rape and they have been convicted before in history. Yes. Right. Right. But like the, the fact that it took this long to get even the stories out there <laughs> publicly about Harvey Weinstein was a failure in the system up to this point. Um, and, and I was saying like the, the long term solution. To I actually mean, R. Fix Kelly these things... took forever. Did, I mean, there are lots of these things. R. Kelly right. took forever. And so yeah. I, I think something. So I, I, I guess it's not just. Um... I mean, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, like they couldn't keep him alive. You know, they just. Well, I mean, narrative that there's to your point earlier, Tom, the narrative around tech is going to get much dicier because there's going to be a downturn in the industry. <laughs> I think that that is. I think that also we have in in acknowledging that we have to acknowledge how much of especially the startup industry really needs has f- been fueled by the media and partnered with the media. So if that goes away, you know what gets built. My hope is that just better companies get built. But right. My, so I just wrote a piece about like this bubble bursting, and one of my points in the piece was just. I don't, this isn't like 2008 where I think there's some like huge societal stakes. Like, let the bubble burst, let some people lose some money. Like, I, I don't know. Is it really going to make tech more of a villain? Like, in some ways, I don't it's think it's going to be more of a villain. Them. It just might make better companies. You can, right. I, I don't think it's need just going to gonna be push, the push them to be closer to reality. Like, honestly, I think we've sort of, I mean, maybe I'm naive and I'll play a different way, but we've sort of seen a lot of the villainy people sort of, hucksters selling nfts and shit and now that's being corrected and so those people lose some money we get back to reality and i i don't know that it's going to actually turn society more against tech because i think tech will seem more level-headed like <laughs> i don't do you well, disagree with that? Yeah. do we need villains and heroes i mean no, like that's no, okay yeah. just well then, sure. you know <laughs> it being back to profile writing it is an easier way to kind of organize the world it is a way easier way but it might not be the best way but this, yeah. this feels pretty disconnected from, I don't know. Well, I also world. think a lot of tech founders grew to be very uncomfortable with the amount of attention that they were getting. I mean, when San Francisco, when you guys both lived here and San Francisco for a brief period was like the cultural and, you know, economic hub of the country. And 
there were, you know, which is a strange place as someone growing up in the Bay Area for the city to be. I, I think it ended up reflecting very poorly, as it would on almost any city and group of people, that people really couldn't handle it. And it oh, I mean, like Manhattan during the height of like the Wall Street like boom in 2007, Manhattan was like grotesque to be in most parts of it, like the sort of bottle service culture of it all. And like women with not much clothes, like dresses, bringing out like champagne with sparklers. All of it was just like sort of like ugh, yicky. Yeah. Yeah. San Francisco we went through that. a different version of that. For, for that, it was just more like hiring task rabbits to wait in line <laughs> state bird provisions <laughs> or something or getting into fights at like the soccer field and the mission. Oh, um, okay. But uh, yeah. I, I, so, we're, so wow, I mean, San it wasn't even as has, fun as the New York version. <laughs> well, that's always the funniest thing about tech, right? Is that like, you know, I, 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 another thing I can bring up for the millionth time in this podcast, when you read through Barbarians at the Gate um, and they talk about, you know, that, that 80s, you know, bond culture. Um, at least the people that were running those, you know, giant private equity funds and, and companies, at least they kind of knew what to do with the money. You know, they would kind of look like they were having fun with it. They would have like fleets of private jets and buying, you know, watches for Frank Gifford and weird shit like that. But at tech, it was just like, what are you exactly spending the money on? It's just well, like, that's why they moved to Miami in the end. You know, right, right, um, where they could like be, where they could, you know, buy some high end art, go to some clubs, and and, yeah. and you know. The Google co-founders are spending on islands. Right. They know Some of that we don't even do. really see. You know, they know what they're uh, doing. Yeah, disappear. Yeah. 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 But I wonder, you know, if we are entering a more rational period of tech where the valuations will be compressed or the multiples will be compressed and the kind of stories that had been written for the last couple of years won't m mean as much anymore. What does that say more broadly about like the business world? Because tech was kind of this miraculous engine of American exceptionalism over the last couple of years. And it was shown as like, this is how we're still out on the frontier compared to the rest of the world. And if tech is just going to be another but, industry with, you know, rational valuations and just building unlike dot com, this is not an existential I'm question. It's existential. I'm just saying like, it's a, no, I know you're not, but I'm just that I, it is about crypto, but it's certainly not about tech. And I, tech is still going to be the dominant, Part of it, I think it'll be well, part, of the, part of dominant part of business. Like it's, it's in every right. part of every industry right now, and I don't a lot know, of like these I, companies are still still like VC originated. You know that funding model going going big. There's still a ton of VC money. Like I, I think that process isn't ending. So we have that story, and then we still have. I mean, the content moderation and sort of how we have these conversations online is still very much alive. Right? Yeah, they're all going to be interesting, important, or not all going to be important companies. There are going to be plenty of important companies, but they're not going to be exceptional. I don't think they're going to exist in a class outside of the rest of the business world. And I think Katie Generative said, AI? The rise of AI. <laughs> oh, I'm happy I know to talk you're about a that. skeptical. Tom yeah. wrote a very... His last parting shot in Insider was to, to shit on whether... Or just to be cast... What? To cast doubt on whether... Uh, Generative AI would be helpful in the competition. Would, would, would replace Google. Search. So I'm happy to talk about that for a second here because the New York Times literally said the opposite. Did we? And that, that's fun. Yeah. No. In the headline. Nico wrote a really great story for the Times that was talking about how Google. I know. Was I tried responding. to spark a Can fight we like just Twitter, explain but... to the audience that the reason why I don't know anything that's fucking going on is because like everybody I love is sick and dying, and that I've been really busy. <laughs> and it's not because I stopped reading the New York Times. It's not because I hate media. It's literally just because when I'm not doing this podcast 
or doing my day job, I am like literally just keeping track of all the people who could die. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Part of why we're doing this podcast is let Katie be distracted for an hour. That's the most uh, charitable. Yeah. That's the greatest mitzvah we could give with this podcast is to take people away. It's the only from way it. Tom and I know how to be good friends. Hey, come on our podcast. Uh, uh, that's a good way to maintain any friendship. It's all just <laughs> podcast related interactions. Produce for us. All right. Just, just create content that can be distributed. So generative AI, we, you, know, you know, obviously what that is. And so there's been this kind of meme and argument among the uh, tech reporting class, especially that all of these technologies, specifically chat GPT, which maybe you've seen, it's kind of like a chat bot that's very smart and can produce very interesting, you know, intelligent human sounding responses to questions. There's this argument that it's going to replace Google and that Google is fucked because the new way of searching and getting answers to things is going to be interacting with open AIs, you know, GPT-3 or GPT-4, which is going to come out next year, or chat GPT. And uh, New York Times, Nico Grant, who's a really good reporter, wrote a piece that talked about how Google is declaring it, you know, red alert or code red internally because they feel that they have kind of missed the boat to this point on, uh, on you know, what... Uh, generative AI and chatbots will do for the future of search. And it came out a couple of days after I wrote a story that basically said chat is not anywhere close to replacing search. It has huge flaws in it. It's a lying, expensive... What's wrong all the time, it's very cocky. Like, it gives you a very confident sounding answer. This Which one? Mine or... or oh, oh, chat No, I'm saying chat GPT. It's the white man of AI. You know, it sounds like it knows what it's, it's talking about. It's actually incredible. I, I, I'm happy to actually bring up this example now. So so yesterday, because I do love talking about it to people um, and because it, it's a really fun demo to, to bring to people. Everyone should do it at Christmas. You know, launch chat GPT and show them how good it is at responding to your questions. But I wanted to show Rosa recently how good it is at writing essays. And so I was like, oh, I should have it write an essay, like in do, interpreting the symbolism of some short story. And I was like, oh, I remember when I was in college, I read the short story that was something about a girlfriend talking about how her boyfriend was evolving uh, reverse, having like reverse, experiencing reverse evolution. And I couldn't remember the name of the short story, but I remember that that was like an opening line. Like my boyfriend is evolving in reverse. Normally you would just go to Google and type that in and come up with the name of it. But I'm like, no, let me ask ChatGPT. So I asked ChatGPT, what's the name of the short story where the narrator says her boyfriend is evolving in reverse? And they're like, the story that you were talking about is called The Reverse Evolution of Chuck Palahniuk, in which the narrator uh, talks about her boyfriend, Chuck Palahniuk, is, is evolving in reverse. I'm like, what the fuck? What, what are you talking about? I've never heard of the short stories. Then I go to Google and I type in the evolution of Chuck Palahniuk in quotes, no responses. Yeah. And then I go to Google and I type in the same question that I gave ChatGPT, which is like, what's the name of the short story? And they're like, oh, it's The Rememberer by Amy Bender, which is like this anthologized short story that was written in like the late 90s. So immediately it gave me the correct answer to it, the Wikipedia page to that short story. Whereas ChatGPT literally just fucking made it up. But I, know, I but have did no they idea make, where it came you up feel, with that. You, you seem to me like a Chuck Palahniuk fan, just just like looking at you. So. <laughs> Maybe it knew me better than I did. Tom, Tom, this story is very much like my gas car does goes very fast. Like why why need an electric car that, that needs will to drive be you directly into a wall? Recharged every, you know, like, it yeah, depends on the it, maker. it's a newer technology. You know, they're working on it. One of the most interesting things about this era and writing about ChatGPT and OpenAI is their willingness to release a product that is clearly not street ready, right? This thing is 
in no way is a replacement or even an Well, Tesla's willing to do it with a car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, so, but that's interesting with self-driving, right? You know, like we haven't released self-driving in any sort of, well, Tesla has. Well, yes. And people die. But, you know, like the responsible companies have not, whereas OpenAI basically just, and there's been a lot of criticism in in the AI world for OpenAI deciding to Well, I mean, OpenAI, you know, use stable diffusion as part, you know, there was, there were other people who came out ahead and they're like, well, if it's going to be out there, we'll, we'll do it. I mean, Google has seemingly been very restrained. I mean, they right. are they much more the cautious about their self-driving cars. They're much more cautious about whatever their Dolly competitor is. I mean, you're you're about to be covering Microsoft, which is very closely partnered with OpenAI. So I'm sure you'll be writing about this fight with Google a ton uh, going forward. Yeah, I, and I think it's so a fascinating topic. So sources reach out to Tom. Yeah, yeah. My, my DMs are open. That's the only thing I use Twitter for. But make clear to him that if you need to... K- Hang your scoops on him getting permission from Wall Street Journal editors to let him come on the podcast. Be like, this scoop is if Tom does another episode and then he can go to his editors and be like, listen, I I don't know, are we willing? (laughs) I think that's a pretty straight up case for them. I'm giving you story ideas. What about me here? I don't want to position myself as the anti-AI guy. I think it's really interesting technology. I do think the media is running into an issue, which is that And it is kind of suspicious that at the same time that a lot of VC investments are going into AI, you're seeing a lot of stories written by reporters saying this is the future and this is replacing Google, which is exactly the point of view that VCs. Anyway, continue. Yes. And this is exactly what VCs want to have happen, because then you are investing in a really valuable company. Mm -hmm. My God, the next Google. How great would that be? And so, first of all, it's a funny counter to the idea that, you know, the media hates tech. Uh, right. Because we are hyping up a new technology. Well, yeah, episode. we need to we acknowledge that there's a symbiotic relationship between right. yeah. venture capital and the media. And I think we need to right, be a little bit more s- clear-eyed about it. It's just how humanity works. Humanity right. wants something new to talk about. It's like, we're bored of these old themes. Like, what's a new thing we can, like, all right. hash out? Like, that's good. I mean, and it's fun to the sense. To the sense we don't have a sh- it's good to have a shared conversation. Like, if yep. anything, it would be more fun if more people could talk about the same things. You know, we all have our different little media outlets that look at them, you know, in different degrees of meta and self-reflexivity yeah. or whatever. But we're all talking about the same It's things. interesting. Like there's yeah. so, so much of the nostalgia for the 90s is that it was the last time that we all talked about the same stuff. So even though not everybody Black monoculture. loved yeah. the show Friends, we all just kind of watched it together. And we didn't love these things, but we did it together. And so that's, you know, I don't know if we'll ever have that again. I just watched a Lindsay Lohan Netflix movie. We couldn't quite See, tell Eric and I are met, never going to share that experience. Anyway, uh, the last thing on, on, on the AI side of things I will say is that when you talk to these people, and I expect to be talking to a lot of you know the, the people that are working in the front lines of building AI tech, they are extremely confident in their belief that this will replace so many different kinds of jobs. And not only that it will do it, but it will do it in the next like three or four years. And it's very compelling talking to them. And I think a lot of reporters fall into the trap of listening to them and assuming that that is truth. And it is certainly a version of truth. But I encourage a lot of people over the next couple of months as this becomes probably the biggest story in tech to measure your enthusiasm for the people that are talking to you about it with the realities of what the tech can't do. And I think, Eric, you were like very outspoken in your belief that like self-driving was a waste of time to write yes. about when you were covering. Yes. Well, self-driving I, was something that was supposed to be with us today. I mean, like yeah, yeah, right. last year, it was like 2014, 2012. My whole strategy was just like not to write about it a lot. And the challenge is there isn't much benefit 
to anyone, to reporters, to just like, oh, I'm out on that story. I mean, you, I get to, if you have really good friends who are willing to brag about you, I guess you get to be self-indulgent. But it's it's even hard to convince people. It's like, oh, I was smart about not doing something. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to just like sit out a conversation and to just like scold the conversation you add more attention to it. I'm yeah. much more bullish on generative AI, to be clear, because I think the thresh it doesn't need yeah. to be as good to be useful. I think it's unclear. I think we're probably going to be bad at predicting which jobs get displaced. But I think we also underestimate as elites just like how much most people aren't great at writing, don't feel comfortable writing, and like you can use it like in their daily life to be more literate, you know, or come off as more literate. So I think it's going to be pretty powerful. Yeah, it, it has a place. And I'm not saying don't write about it or because I'm going to. So everyone will call me a hypocrite when they see stories uh, that I've written about it. But but I just think it's pro- it would do reporters well to not jump to conclusions that it's going to replace a trillion dollar company in right. the next couple right. of years. And I'm not saying that's what Nico's story did. But you know, it's it's easy to call it like a red alert or something, right? Or yeah, I think code red or something. And and you know, to be like fully upfront here, I was also chasing that story as well. I'd also heard that Google was concerned about it. I also think you know, companies can respond to external stimuli as well. When they see other people saying shit, employees are like, oh, what do we do? We need to start asking questions, and then leaders respond to what their employees are asking. And a a company as big as Google, I suspect, if you structure it well, you have one team that thinks one way and one thinks yeah. the other, and you just sort of like, I don't know, both both pursue your strategies and then we'll decide at the end. Yeah. But I will say I'm more excited to see this whole era of AI investments than I was about crypto. Yeah. I think it's way it's way more meaningful. Well, Mar- it- Mark Andreessen would say it's because crypto is fundamentally like pro-leftist, pro-censorship. Sorry. A- AI is pro-leftist, pro-censorship, whereas crypto was pro-fraud, libertarian, decentralization. <laughs> right. You know, like the ideology of AI is sort of more aligned with like we're not going to have to work the anymore. Ideology like, of AI, these yeah, fucking that, people, that, yeah, these like, fucking so, people. I think that the the AI story is going to be one that's similar to self-driving, and that there will be a lot of interesting utility there, but it just won't be the things that we predicted based on things that VCs told us based on the narrative they had to create in order to raise money. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Maybe that could be like the one thing people can learn from not the show, but you know, the the kind of things that we talked about when we were all on the show was that think about the motivations that people have for saying the things that they say. And that includes the media, Mm -hmm. I think. Right. right? Mm -hmm. You know, the motivations that we have for writing a certain story reveals a lot about the incentive structure of the companies we work for and also the sources that we have. And Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And that hopefully can help people understand better the reasons they hate us if they do. (laughs) Well, I think we all understand the reasons why people are down on Eric right now based on this Twitter trauma. Because I said they should go fuck themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I, in conflict de-escalation, <laughs> that was uh, maybe my tactical. I wasn't trying to de-escalate. Though. That's I the was, thing. This is why Eric yeah. and I are so different as people. <laughs> what? Yeah, that was funny too because you saw yourself as like the scold during the the Jason Calcanis show, and I was like, you were pretty restrained <laughs> during most of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, like for uh, me, yeah, for me though. Just... <laughs> yeah. In my world, I was being a real dick. 
Well, Katie yeah. was trying to fact check him some, and we were like, "Oh, my nah, God, not, worth it. This. not worth uh, it." It was funny too. <laughs> it was funny too during the AGM episode when he was like, "It seems like we have this interesting triptych going here of left, right, and center." We're like, "I'm the right, Eric's the left." I'm the center. I'm like, "No," and I forgot to say this during the episode. I have no political ideology here. I just gravitate towards which argument is the most cynical. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, that's I bob that's all good, around the place. Sit, sit with that, sit with that for a while, Tom. Yeah, yeah we just wow. on that one for self observation. Um, I have no core, I have nothing. Well, right, Merry Christmas, then. I mean, say <laughs> so that's exactly yeah, what baby yeah. Jesus would want. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I hope everyone that's listening has enjoyed. Uh, and has learned things over the last 18 months that we've done this show. It, it will continue to exist in some form with Eric and occasionally Katie. And uh, uh, hopefully with the same name. I like Dead Cat. I mean, I I think Dead Dead Cat name, Back so from the Grave is a perfectly uh, good name. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's good. Very. I, I might just call it Dead Cat with Eric Newcomer. <laughs> really, you know, leave really it to the, the ego a little more. Set the you stakes know? here of what you're getting with the show. <laughs> I do think it can be a little confusing. Like we, yeah. we, you know, it. Whenever you get new people, listeners, they don't necessarily have the context and where. If they if this is their first episode, God help them, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not the show going forward. Like um, we didn't we didn't even introduce Tom at all or Katie. Like it or doesn't me matter because like, we're all leaving. Met, Why introduce people? Who you know, yeah. Substack begs me to say I write like a newsletter. I'm like, I don't know if they can't figure that out. Uh, they're not going to make it through this episode. You know. Well, you know, maybe we can end on this point because we did talk earlier in jest about you know friendships and relationships being, you know, transactional as funneled through a podcast. But uh, the one thing that I enjoyed more than anything with the show is um, I think we've talked more, you know, per- person to person than we had probably since we all lived in San Francisco together and, you know, would hang out over the weekends. That uh, is true. I, I missed Ernest, that. Sacker, and Tom. Oh, my yeah. God. Um, Tom, no, I agree yeah, with you. That has been very lovely. Yeah. It has been very nice. I'm sad. That the Wall Street Journal has decided to destroy to end friendships, my friendships, to break up yeah. families. <laughs> At least make it Rupert Murdoch to make it the journal. Just be like, Murdoch told you have to break up with your friends. It's like a gang initiation, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, or like, it's or, or like Scientology. Nice. No, I um, I I don't know. I don't know how to end on anything. M- maybe after to that. hang it's out. It's hard we'll for me to record, be earnest. We can just record our own episodes, like sort released. of for ourselves, and then one day, you know, we'll the unreleased release know. the archives. Yeah. Well, it was very good seeing you guys in 2022. I'm hoping 2023 is a little better and uh, that we'll see one another in person soon. That would be great. Um, I, I love you guys. Love you too. <laughs> love you too. All right. All right. Uh, peace. Have a Happy nice New Year. All right. Bye. I think that was a very nice ending. Goodbye. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.